are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary in Iowa. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. Does a machine influence what food you buy, where you buy it, when you buy it? How about your clothing? How about different software available for your computer, games, or other entertainment systems? Do you subscribe to Hulu, Netflix, or do you stick with YouTube? And was that influenced by artificial intelligence? Who designed the algorithm that produced that purchase? These are some questions that you may or may not be wrestling with and thinking through, but today's guest, Dr. John Lennox, is going to help us do so. Dr. John Lennox is Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford. He's a Fellow in Mathematics and the Philosophy of Science and Pastoral Advisor at Green Templeton College in Oxford. He's the author of many books, but most recently, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. Today, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, the presence of machines, and how that interacts with ethics, the reasons why we might be thinking and discussing some of these things as spiritual leaders and pastors, and finally, how you might start to make inroads into your church and others whom you influence around such questions. I think you're going to enjoy today's episode from one of the world's most uh, prominent apologists and leaders in the Christian faith. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti and I am Wesley. My name is Chris and guess what? I am Wesley. Hi, I'm Tina Shapit and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr, and I belong here. You belong here too, because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary podcast, Dr. Lennox. We are delighted that you've joined us today. Thank you very much. Delighted to be with you, even though it's virtual reality. We're getting used to it. Well, we are getting used to it. And even as uh, we were chatting before we came on air, um, what, a, what a gift and a sign that this can be of, of God's grace, right? This opportunity to converse uh, across many, many miles and different time zones is, is a, a gift that has been made possible by you know, ingenuity and creativity and even connects in with the subject of your most recent book. So you've recently written the book, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity, so maybe I could start our conversation simply by asking, what made you want to write a book on artificial intelligence and the future? Many reasons, actually, that have to do with my life path. I'm a mathematician. I'm interested in science in a broad sense, and the whole God and science debate, that's number one. But secondly, I'm interested in bioethics and ethical questions and in fact some years ago i actually did a master's research degree on bioethics and coming from both angles both ethics and science and christianity one of the central questions is what is a human being mm. and it's one thing to discuss it simply from a biblical perspective and that's important but now we have, for the first time in our history, really, the 
burning desire on the part of many people to enhance humanity. And we've got the technology that we didn't have before to begin to interfere, so to speak, with the human germline germ and, and to bioengineer. And that raises all kinds of questions. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Is it legitimate? And what does it mean from a Christian perspective? And I could see this burgeoning. And then I discovered finally that there were major books in the market being read by millions. And one of them was by the Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari called Homo Deus, the man who is God. And when I read that, I thought I, I must write into this because it's driven by the worldview of atheism. It's raising questions that I do believe Christianity has an answer to. And so I wrote the book. I've got a friend of mine who's uh, consistently had challenging and sometimes pleasant and sometimes not so pleasant conversations with me about the nature of faith. And, and it is couched in the context of a friendship, although at different times you might feel frustrations from either one of us come out. One of the questions that he's often uh, raised with, with me in different ways is something along the lines of having his personality and memories and um, interests and desires somehow input into a computer so that elements of who he is would outlast his own biological life. And he would certainly consider himself uh, strongly agnostic, if not atheist. So he would make assertions that, that God does not exist and give reasons that God, that he doesn't believe that any kind of divine being um, exists. I'd love for you to unpack for us a little bit. Do you see a connection between, uh, or, or what connection do you see between the atheist worldview and framework and a desire for human augmentation or perhaps living on in machines? This is a very ancient, almost primal drive in human beings. And from a Christian perspective, it originates right at the beginning when uh, human beings were tempted by the promise, if you eat this, if you disobey God's word, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And right through history, again and again, there's risen this idea that we can become gods. And it's surfacing. And Harari is a very good example of your friend's attitude because he has two major issues. He said death, physical death, is something none of us like, and we want to abolish that. But it's a technical problem, and we're going to solve it as a technical problem. That's point number one, and he reckons we're going to do it this century. His second agenda for the 21st century is to increase human happiness by bioengineering. And take them both together, the longing for immortality and the desire to replace something that perishes like carbon-based life and replace it with silicon-based life that's much more permanent, they hope, is part of that drive to be immortal. And I think Christianity speaks into that by giving us a message to say, well, there is an answer to it, but it, it's not what you think. The quest for physical immortality, the answer to that is the resurrection. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead 
and offers to anybody who trusts him that they will join in that resurrection in the future. So there's no need to be worried that you're going to lose anything that's valuable. But it depends on one's response to God and to Christ. Now, if your friend's an agnostic, does he mean that he doesn't know? Because if people don't know, we can help them and give them some knowledge. Or does he mean you can't know? And if he means you can't know, then I don't understand him because if he says, I don't know and you can't know, how does he know that I can't know, <laughs> if you see what I mean? I often say to people, when they say I'm an agnostic, I say, so am I. There are loads of things I don't know. Now you tell me some of the things you don't know and maybe I can help you and I'll tell you some of the things I don't know and you can maybe help me. And that can develop a friendship. Well, and, you know, I've, I've also had friends that, that claim they don't believe in God. And I've heard uh, Dr. N.T. Wright use the line, well, tell me what God you don't believe in, because I yes. might not believe in, in him either. And it can sound kind of facetious, right? It can sound kind of clever, but it's actually a very uh, important way to start building a friendship, because that does reveal what are the beliefs that we carry around with us? What are the beliefs? What are the hopes that are internal that around which we formed our lives and which help to give sense to the practices that, that um, make up the structure of our lives? And it can be very interesting that sometimes the claims to beliefs simply don't match the practices that are the structure of a person's life. And that might go for a person might be Christian by belief, but not Christian by action. Or they might be atheist by by their words, by their, their purported beliefs, but not by their action. They might not live in a way that is accustomed with those values. And so it can be an actual way into knowing the other person uh, very deeply. Now, maybe that helps to lead into the next question, because one of the things that you talk about in the book and that we often use machines for is to know other people well and to know them deeply, to study what their habits are, maybe their, their buying habits. So you talk about surveillance capitalism in the book, and that would have to do with, well, well um, what, are, uh, what are a person's buying habits? When do they buy things and what are they interested in buying? Um, when are they most apt to click on a link in one of their social media feeds to, to purchase a new shirt or something else at a, a time of dissatisfaction or yearning in their life? And you also talk about uh, surveillance communism. Uh, so surveillance capitalism and surveillance communism. Uh, if I could maybe try to be a little bit succinct with it, surveillance capitalism finds and tracks and mines a soul's data to make a sale. And surveillance communism observes and finds and tracks to form a soul, right? To, to put them into a certain box and to, to have them act a certain way. I'd love for you to talk to us about why paying attention to surveillance matters. If we've talked about getting to know another person as a person, why should we pay attention to machines coming to know us? And why should this matter to us, especially moving into the future? Well, let's step back a bit because you made a very important point at the beginning. And that is you're asking people questions about their worldview and what God they believe in. I think this is essential to communication these days. And I play Socrates all the time. I ask people questions. And you're right. I was taught many years ago that I got two ears and one mouth and I should use them <laughs> in that proportion. 
and listening to people. People are desperate for folks to listen to them. And they love to have questions asked about themselves. So if we ask them questions like that, look, it may be a bit facetious, but tell me about the God you don't believe in. And listen very carefully. That can often lead to a much deeper friendship because people want to know that someone is interested in them. Now, when it comes to your specific questions here, why should we be interested? Because it's a question of how we value certain things that we have up to now almost taken for granted mm. in what is called civilized society. We resent extreme intrusion. And the fact that astonishes me, and I do it myself, I'm wearing a very sophisticated tracker that's following me around the planet. It will tell that I've met with you this evening. It can place me geographically. It's called a smartphone. And that's all very well if it's used for innocent purposes. But suppose a government decides that, let's say, Christian opinion is not allowable in the public space then you could immediately begin to feel a lot of pressure. And I'm not talking just futuristic imagination. This is happening. And it's happening in particular in Xinjiang province in China, where the Uyghurs, who are a minority Muslim people, are subject to the most extreme surveillance and are being monitored and sent to rehabilitation camps. And as you see that happening, it reflects the title of my book, 2084, which is modeled in George Orwell's 1984, Big Brother is Watching You. Now, it matters because that technology that's now being rolled out all over China exists in the West, and we just don't know how much is going to be used. Now, if you don't care tuppence about your privacy, then, of course, it doesn't matter until you are told your opinions are not acceptable and you get the thought police uh, acting. And that would be very serious indeed, and it's very intrusive. The other thing that's happening is this. You mentioned uh, what I called, uh, and actually it comes from a, a famous professor, Shuzana Zuboff at MIT, uh, surveillance capitalism. And these prompts on our phones, you bought this book last month, people who bought that book will buy this book, and they're suggesting all kinds of things. What many people do not realize is that the major companies are harvesting all this information, and they've got far more information about us than we know about ourselves, and they're selling it. In other words, they're selling on information that we have parted with. Now, that raises huge questions. Do we wish to, for people to make a profit of our information? And we know, of course, that there's a shady side to this. People stealing millions of credit card details. And I know because mine was stolen and it caused an enormous amount of fuss and difficulty. And it's that kind of invasion, I think, that we need to be aware of. And therefore, the, the bottom line is this, the technology is growing so rapidly that it is out 
outpacing the ethical backup. And some major players in these fields are just beginning to realize, hey, we need to be careful here because we're building systems that are taking over more and more of activities that used to be the space where human beings and only human beings operated. How is it going to be policed? How is it going to be ethically balanced? And even at the lower levels of AI working on, on big data, they've found that it could be biased against women. For example, AI is used in many job interviews so that people don't ever have a face-to-face -face interview. It's all done by collecting data and bias builds in. So then comes the question, who is laying down the ground rules ethically for the programmers? So there are huge problems here. And I just believe that Christians need to get in on this and think about it. You've raised a, a, a way of thinking that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to attach to another issue that we're wrestling with here in the United States most uh, all too commonly, and that's the issue of racism. And the connection I want to make is this, is um, one of the things that we talk about in, in addressing racism is to make real relationships and to make friends with people um, against whom there may be a stigma or against, against whom as a whole there might be preconceived ideas. But whenever we make personal relationships that those stigmas can be brought down and, are, and, and wider interpretations that are often unfair or biased can be, start to be broken up. To bring it back into your illustration of having your credit card stolen, maybe it's easier to steal one's credit card because one's only stealing the number. They're not actually stealing from Dr. John Lennox, right? Or well, that's right. My yes. my uh, uh, a company that I'm uh, have a, a connection with their their website was recently broken into, and it wasn't broken into by people who live in the same community. It was broken into by people who live in a different continent, right? Their yes. their the website is 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 breached, and that's that's some of the information that came out. And the the connection I want to make is that because there's a a machine in between the personal relationships that are things that we would otherwise consider wrong now don't feel quite so wrong. Yes. I'm not just, I'm not stealing from another person. I'm stealing a number. I'm not breaking into what belongs to another person. I know I'm breaking into a website that's open in front of me that anybody can access. Um, does that get at some of the ethical challenges that you're trying to identify that whenever we are using machines that we can become disconnected from other persons and as a result feel more comfortable of using them and abusing them because it's happening via a machine or via technology rather than in more personal ways? It is. And the extreme example of it is cyber warfare. Hmm. We have automatic weapons that now can choose targets, eliminate them without anybody lifting a finger because the data has been fed into some data bank somewhere and an artificial intelligence system has programmed it and it's got some rules to which it operates and the person behind it has no sense of contact with the victim whatsoever. And I think you're quite right it's a depersonalization and that's a very dangerous thing and that's why the the question that is behind everything is what is a human being how should we treat our fellow human beings and of course that's a central issue for the christian faith so i think we need to have christians thinking in with everybody else another example 
is the coronavirus. I've just written a book, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? That's all over the place now in cyberspace and so on. But what I've noticed is if you look at the media, who speaks to it? Politicians and medical scientists. There are no ethicists. There are no theologians. There are no philosophers discussing the implications of this. It's just politics and science. And that, in a way, is a scandal that we don't realize that the problem isn't just politics and science, although those two elements are important. It has to do with human values. And it's exactly the same in the area of artificial intelligence. One of the things I appreciated about the book is the value you placed on connecting consciousness with intelligence. And we talked yes. about artificial intelligence, but uh, the, the human being is one who's connecting intelligence with consciousness. And you can connect that with conscience. And a machine doesn't know if it's doing right or wrong. It only knows if it's working or it doesn't even know, but it only works or doesn't work. You know, programming only works or doesn't work but there's no right or wrong to the machine, but there is right or wrong to the human being. And that ethical nature is a deep component that we, we only give up and sacrifice even in small ways to our own peril. That's correct. And the biblical worldview makes it very clear that when God created human beings, he married the physical body with a conscience and, and a mind. Now, what is happening is the desire to get rid of the conscious bit and simply have the physical embodiment of it. Now, of course, they love to invent a conscious machine, but since no one has any idea of what consciousness is, that is a pipe dream. That is highly mm. unlikely. But separating awareness from the machinery has this extra danger because conscious human beings, as you say, have a conscience. That is, they are aware of moral values. A computer is not, an AI system is not. So the only way you can deal with that is to build the ethics and the standards into it. But then that's human beings doing it. And who decides what's right and wrong? And this is a fundamental issue that I discovered when I was studying ethics. Nobody wants to answer the question, who said so? And you'll find that in law, you'll find it in science, you'll find it in business, you'll find it in every area of life. This is the hard question. But again, scripture is something to say about it. And these are hard questions. I'm not pretending they're easy but we need to be discussing them so that people don't walk sleepwalk into a catastrophe. Well, you've already started to answer the last question I want to ask. So uh, we've been discussing your book, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. And you mentioned the importance of having at least our people thinking and discussing some of these issues. And like I said, that's a, that's a beginning answer to what I wanna ask you, which is this. You mentioned about politicians and scientists and theologians and philosophers and, and the different roles they may or unfortunately may not be playing in the public sphere. Uh, but I would like you to talk to pastors in just the next one or two minutes that we've got left. Um, how can pastors who are working with local churches of maybe 50 people or 75 or maybe a couple hundred or even 500, what encouragement or advice would you have for pastors as they are working with their people around such issues? 
Well, what I would say is, and pastoral work is enormously important, is many pastors are a little bit afraid of entering this kind of area because they're not scientifically trained, although some are these days. And what I would suggest is the approach you were mentioning earlier. Get to know the professionals, particularly the young professionals in your congregation, and ask them to explain to you in as simple terms as they can what they do, and then ask them what are the moral and ethical problems they come up against. Mm so that it comes from a finding out from them what the questions are, rather than the pastor trying to make up uh, their minds as to what the questions actually that should be addressed ought to be. And I think relationships can uh, be established. For example, if a pastor has somebody working in computer science, maybe even AI, give them the chance to talk to the church about what they do. Hmm. and say to the church, look, I need you to pray for me because we're facing all kinds of ethical problems. I'm a designer of self-driving vehicles, and we've got a problem here because if their camera picks up an old lady in the middle of the road and the only way out for the car is to hit a line of children, how, how does it decide it's going to hit one of the two? And those sort of things are big problems. And I think that pastors can really encourage their congregations because they're taking their questions seriously. I've heard so many times over recent years, and it saddens me, people say, the church isn't remotely interested in what I do outside the church. As long as I come to church, that's fine. But they're not slightly interested in what I face on a Monday morning. This needs to change, otherwise we lose people. And there's a huge advantage at the moment because online churches are much fuller than the churches were before they went online. People are concerned about COVID-19 and therefore there's a ready-made audience and people are asking questions. And I think it's a huge opportunity to get to know people, to engage them, to give them a bit of a platform and an opportunity to explain what they do and what their difficulties are. Just to imagine a church service where three or four people explained what they did and what the problems they faced. And then there was a Q&A with the pastor and other qualified people responding to it. I think Joining us today has been Dr. John Lennox. Dr. Lennox is the author of many books, most recently, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. Dr. Lennox, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Western Seminary podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for a very interesting conversation. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You make conversations like this possible. If you've enjoyed this episode, check out perhaps the episode with uh, Dr. Thacker and his book on artificial intelligence as well. I encourage you to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're accessing the Wesley Seminary podcast. Thanks to Cam for his great production work. Great to partner with you. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.